Now it works, doesn't it? All right. So, for the moment, um, welcome to the first Alaric Reads story time, whatever you want to call this. Um, currently, I'm on my own. It is about 7 o'clock, and I have been spending the last little bit with some serious technical difficulties. Um, one of which being Discord deciding to download just infinitely, just infinitely download an update and never function again. Um, my intention is to still record this because maybe people will just enjoy it as a podcast rather than as a live stream, but I am kind of live streaming it with my phone in case anybody wants to pop in to listen. So I am reading Dan Simmons' Hyperion, which for those of who are interested was published in 1989. Hyperion. Prologue. The Hegemony Council sat on the balcony of his in ebony spaceship and played Rachmanov's prelude in C-sharp minor on an ancient but well-maintained Steinway, while great green saurian things surged and bellowed in the swamps below. A thunderstorm was brewing to the north, Bruised black clouds silhouetted a forest of giant gymnosperms, while stratocumulus towered nine kilometers high in a violent sky. Lightning rippled along the horizon. Closer to the ship, occasional vague reptilian shapes would blunder into the interdiction field, cry out, and then crash away through indigo mists. The council concentrated on a difficult section of the prelude and ignored the approach of storm and nightfall. The fat line receiver chimed. The council stopped, fingers hovering above the keyboard, and listened. Thunder rumbled through the heavy air. From the direction of the gymnosperm forest, there came a mournful ululation of a carrion breed pack. Somewhere in the darkness below, a small-brained beast trumpeted its answering challenge and fell quiet. The interdiction field added its sonic undertones to the sudden silence. The fat line chimed again. Damn, said the council, and went in to answer it. While the computer took a few seconds to convert and decode the burst of decaying tachyons, the council poured himself a glass of scotch. He settled into the cushions of the projection pit, just as the disky blinked green. Play, he said. You have been chosen to return to Hyperion, came a woman's husky voice. Full visuals had not yet formed. The air remained empty except for the pulse of transmission codes, which told the council that this fat line squirt had originated on the hegemony administrative world of Tau City Center. The council did not need the transmission coordinates to know this. The aged but still beautiful voice of Mina Gladstone was unmistakable. You have been chosen to return to Hyperion as a member of the Shrike pilgrimage, continued the voice. The hell you say, thought the council, and rose to leave the pit. You and six others have been selected by the Church of the Shrike and confirmed by the All-Thing, said Mina Gladstone. It is the in, in, in the interest of the hegemony that you accept. The council stood motionless in the pit, his back to the flickering transmission codes. Without turning, he raised his glass and drained the last of the scotch. The situation is very confused, said Mina Gladstone. Her voice was wary. The consulate and home rule council flat fatlined us three standard weeks ago with the news that the time tombs showed signs of opening. The antitropic fields around them were expanding rapidly, and the shrike has been ranging has begun ranging as far south as the Brindle Range. The council turned and dropped into the cushions. 
a hollow had formed of Mina Gladstone's ancient face. Her eyes looked as tired as her voice sounded. A force space task force was immediately dispatched from Parvati to execute the hegemony citizens, evacuate the hegemony citizens on Hyperion before the time tombs open. Their time debt will be little more than three Hyperion years. Mina Gladstone paused. The council thought he had never seen the Senate CEO look so grim. We do not know if the evacuation fleet will arrive in time, she said, but the situation is even more complicated. An Oster migration cluster of at least 4,000 units has been detected approaching the Hyperion system. Our, our evacuation task force should arrive only a short while before the oysters. The council understood Gladstone's hesitation. An oyster migration cluster might consist of ships ranging in size from single-person ramp scouts to can cities and comet forts holding tens of thousands of the interstellar barbarians. The force joint chiefs believe that this is the oyster's big push, said Mina Gladstone. The ship's computer has posi had positioned the hollow so that the woman's sad brown eyes seemed to be staring directly at the council. Whether they seek to control just Hyperion for the time tombs, or whether this is an all-out attack on the world web, remains to be seen. In the meantime, a full-force space battle fleet, complete with Farcaster Construction Battalion, has spun up from the CAN system to join the evacuation task force, but this fleet may be recalled depending upon circumstances. The council nodded ab and absently raged, raised the scotch to his lips. He frowned an empty glass and dropped it under thick carpeting of the hollow pit. Even with no military training, he understood the difficult tactician, tactical decision Gladstone and the Joint Chiefs were faced with. Unless a military forecaster were hurriedly constructed in the Hyperion system, at staggering expense, there would be no way to resist the oyster invasion. Whatever secrets the time tombs might hold would go to the hegemony's enemy. If the fleet did construct a forecaster in time, and the hegemony committed the total resources of force to defending the single, distant colonial world of Hyperion, the world web ran the terrible risk of suffering an oyster attack elsewhere on the perimeter, or, in a worst-case scenario, having the barbarians actually seizing the forecaster and penetrating the web itself. The council tried to imagine the reality of armored oyster troops stepping through Farcaster portals into the undefended home cities of on a hundred worlds. The council walked through the hollow of Mina Gladstone, retrieved his glass, and went to pour another scotch. You have been chosen to join the pilgrimage to the Shrike, said the image of the old CEO whom the press loved to compare to Lincoln or Churchill or Alvarez Temp or whatever other president. Pre-Hegra legend was in, in historical vogue at the time. The Templars are sending their tree ship Yagrasil, said Gladstone, and the evacuation task force commissioner has instructed to let it pass. With a three-week time debt, you can rendezvous with the Yagrasil before it goes quantum from the party system. The six other pilgrims chosen by the Shrike Church will all be aboard the tree ship. Our intelligence reports suggest that at least one of the seven pilgrims is an agent of the oysters. We do not, at this time, have any way of knowing which one it is. The council had to smile. Among all the other risks Gladstone was taking, the old woman had to consider the possibility that he was the spy and that she was fatlining crucial information to an Oster agent. Or had she given him any crucial information? The fleet movements were detectable as soon as the ships used their hawking drives. And if the council were the spy, the CEO's revel revelation might be a way to scare him off. The council's smile faded, and he drank his scotch. 
Sol Wintrab and Friedman Kassad are among the seven pilgrims chosen, said Gladstone. The council's frown deepened. He stared at the cloud of digits, flickering like dust motes around the old woman's image. Fifteen seconds of fatline transmission time remained. We need your help, said Mina Gladstone. It is essential that the secrets of the time tombs and the shrike be uncovered. This pilgrimage may be our last chance. If the Osters conquer Hyperion, their agent must be eliminated and the time tombs sealed at all cost. The fate of the hegemony may depend upon it. The transmission ended, except for the pulse of rendezvous coordinates. Response? asked the ship's computer. Despite the tremendous energies involved, the spacecraft was capable of placing a brief, coded squirt into the in incessant babble of FTL bursts, which tied the human portions of the galaxy together. No, said the council, and went outside to lean on the balcony railing. Night had fallen and the clouds were low. No stars were visible. The darkness would have been absolute, except for the intermittent flash of lightning to the north and a soft phosphorescence rising from the marshes. The council was suddenly very aware that he was, at that second, the only sentient being on an unmanned world. He listened to the antediluvian night sounds rising from the swamps, and he thought about morning, about setting out on the Vic and EMV at first light, about spending the day in sunshine, about hunting big game in the fern forest to the south, and then returning to the ship in the evening for a good steak and a cold beer. The council thought about the sharp pleasure of the hunt, an equally sharp solace of solitude. Solitude he had earned through pain and nightmare he had already suffered on Hyperion. Hyperion. The council went inside, brought the balcony in, and sealed the ship just as the first heavy raindrops began to fall. He climbed the spiral staircase to his sleeping cabin at the apex of the ship. The circular room was dark except for silent explosions of lightning which outlined rivulets of rain coursing the skylight. The council stripped, lay back on the firm mattress, and switched on the sound system and external audio pickups. He listened as the fury of the storm blended with the violence of Wagner's flight of the Valkyries. Hurricane winds buffeted the ship. The sound of thunderclaps filled the room as the, sky, as the skylight flashed white, leaving afterimages burning in the council's retinas. Wagner is good only for thunderstorms, he thought. He closed his eyes, but the lightning was visible through closed eyelids. He remembered the giant, the glint of ice crystals blowing through the tumbled ruins on the low hills near the time tombs, and the colder gleam of steel on the Shrike's impossible tree of metal thorns. He remembered screams in the night, and the hundred-fauceted, ruby-and-blood gaze of the Shrike itself. Hyperion. The council silently commanded the computer to shut off all speakers, and raised his wrist to cover his eyes. In the sudden silence, he lay thinking about how insane it would be to return to Hyperion. During his eleven years as counsel on that distant and enigmatic world, the mysterious Church of the Shrike had allowed a dozen barges of off-world pilgrims to depart for the windswept barrens around the time tombs north of the mountains. No one had returned. And that had been in normal times, when the Shrike had been prisoner to the tides of time and forces no one understood and the anti-entropic fields had been contained to a few dozen meters around the time tombs, and there had been no threat of an oyster invasion. The council thought of the Shrike, free to wander everywhere on Hyperion, with the millions of indigenes and thousands of Hyperion citizens, helpless 
before a creature which defied physical laws, which communicated only through death, and he shivered despite the warmth of the cabin. Hyperion. The night and storm passed. Another storm front raced ahead of the approaching dawn. Gymnosperms, two hundred meters tall, bent and whipped before the coming torrent. Just before first light, the Council's ebony spaceship rose on a tail of blue plasma and punched through the thickening clouds as it climbed toward space and rendezvous. 1. The Council awoke with a peculiar headache, dry throat, and sense of having forgotten a thousand dreams which only periods in cryogenic fugue could bring. He blinked, sat upright on a low couch, and groggily pushed away the last sensor tapes clinging to his skin. There were two very short crew clones and one very tall hooded Templar with him in the windowless ovoid of a room. One of the clones offered the council the traditional post-thaw glass of orange juice. He accepted it and drank greedily. The tree is two light minutes and five hours of travel from Hyperion, said the Templar. And the council realized that he was being addressed by Het Mastine, captain of the Templar tree ship and true voice of the tree. The council vaguely realized that it was a great honor to be awakened by the captain, but he was too groggy and disoriented from fugue to appreciate it. The others have been awake for some, t some hours, said Het Mastine, and gestured for the clones to leave them. They have assembled in the foremost dining platform. Urgh, said the council, and took a drink. He cleared his throat and tried again. Thank you, Het Mastine, he managed. Looking around at the egg-shaped room with its carpet of dark grass, translucent walls, and support ribs of continuous curved weirwood, the council realized that he must be in one of the smaller environmental pods. Closing his eyes, he tried to recall his memories of rendezvous just before the Templar ship went quantum. The council remembered his first glimpse of the kilometer-long tree ship as he closed her rendezvous, the tree ship's details blurred by the radiant, redundant machine and herb-generated containment fields, which surrounded it like a spherical mist, but its leafy bulk clearly ablaze with thousands of lights, which shone softly through the leaves and thin-walled environment pods, or along countless platforms, bridges, command decks, stairways, and bowers. Around the base of the tree ship, engineering and cargo spheres clustered like oversized gulls, while blue and violet drive streams trailed behind like ten-kilometer long routes. The others await, Het Mastine said softly, and nodded toward the low cushions, where the council's luggage lay ready to open upon his command. The Templar gazed thoughtfully at the weirwood rafters, while the council dressed in semi-formal evening wear of loose black trousers, polished ship boots, white silk blouse, which ballooned at the waist and elbows, topaz collar cinch, black demi-coat complete with slashes of hegemony crimson on the epaulets, and a soft gold tricorn. A section of curved wall became a mirror, and the council stared at the image there. A more than middle-aged man in semi-formal evening wear, sunburned skin but oddly pale under the sad eyes. The council frowned, nodded, and turned away. Het Mastine gestured at the council following the tall, robed figure. <sighs> Let me start that sentence over again. Het Mastine gestured, and the council followed the tall, robed figure through a dilation in the pod onto an ascending walkway, which curved up and out of sight around the massive bark wall of the tree ship's trunk. The council paused, moved to the edge of the walkway, and took a quick step back. It was at least 600 meters down, down being created by the one-sixth standard gravity, being generated by the singularities imprisoned at the base of the tree, and there were no railings. They resumed their silent ascent, 
turning off from the main trunk walkway 30 meters and half a trunk spiral later to cross a flimsy suspension bridge to the five-meter-wide branch. They followed this outward to where the riot of leaves caught the glare of Hyperion's sun. Has my ship been brought out of storage? asked the council. It is fueled and ready in Sphere 11, said Hetmestine. They passed into the shadow of the trunk, and stars became visible in the black patches between the dark latticework of leaves. The other pilgrims have agreed to ferry down in your ship if the force authorities give permission, added the Templar. The council rubbed his eyes and wished that he had been allowed more time to retrieve his wits from the cold grip of cryonic fugue. You've been in touch with the task force? Oh, yes, we've, we're challenged the moment we tunneled down from Quantum Leap. A hegemony warship is escorting us this very moment. Hetmastine gestured toward a patch of sky above them. The council squinted upward, but at that second, segments of the upper tiers of branches revolved out of the tree ship's shadow, and acres of leaves ignited in sunset hues. Even in the still-shadowed places, glowbirds nestled like Japanese lanterns above lighted walkways, glowing swing vines, and illuminated hanging bridges, while fireflies from old earth and radiant gossamers from Maui Covenant blinked and coated their way through labyrinths of leaves, mixing with constellations sufficiently to fool even the most star-wise traveler. Hetmastine stepped into a basket lift hanging from a whiskered carbon cable, which disappeared into the 300 meters of tree above them. The council followed, and they were borne silently upward. He noted that the walkways, pods, and platforms were conspicuously empty, except for a few Templars and their diminutive crew clone counterparts. The council could recall seeing no other passengers during his rushed hour between rendezvous and fugue, but he had put that down to the immenseness of the tree ship going quantum, imminence of the tree ship going quantum, assuming that the passengers were safe in their fugue couches. Now, however, the tree ship was traveling far below relativistic velocities, and its branches should be crowded with gawking passengers. He mentioned his observation to the Templar. The six of you are our only passengers, said Hetmastine. The basket stopped in the maze of foliage, and the tree ship captain led the way up a wooden escalator worn with age. The council blinked in surprise. A Templar tree ship normally carried between two and five thousand passengers. It was easily the most desirable way to travel between the stars. Tree ships rarely accrued more than four or five month time debt, making short scenic crossings where star systems were a very few light years apart, thus allowing their affluent passengers to spend as little time as necessary in fugue. For the tree ship to make the trip to Hyperion and back, accumulating six years of web time with no paying passengers, would mean a staggering financial loss to the Templars. Then the council realized, belatedly, that the tree ship would be ideal for the upcoming evacuation and expenses ultimately to be reimbursed by the hegemony. Still, the council knew to bring a ship as beautiful and vulnerable as the Yggdrasil, one of only five of its kind, into a war zone was a terrible risk for the Templar Brotherhood. Your fellow pilgrims, announced Het Mastine as he and the council emerged onto a broad platform where a small group waited at one end of a long wooden table. Above them, the stars burned, rotating occasionally as the tree ship changed its pitch or yaw, while to either side a solid sphere of foliage curved away like the green skin of some great fruit. The council immediately recognized the setting as the captain's dining platform, even before the five other passengers rose to let Hetmastine take his place at the head of the table. 
The council found an empty chair waiting for him to the left of the captain. When everyone was seated and quiet, Hetmastine made formal introductions. Although the council knew none of the others from personal experience, several of the names were familiar, and he used his diplomat's long training to file away identities and impressions. To the council's left sat Father Lennel Hoyt, a priest of the old-style Christian sect known as Catholic. For a second, the council had forgotten the significance of the black clothing and Roman collar, but then he remembered St. Francis's hospital on Hebron, where he had received alcohol trauma therapy after his disastrous first diplomatic assignment there almost four standard decades earlier. And at the mention of Hoyt's name, he remembered another priest, one who had disappeared on Hyperion halfway through his own tenure there. Lennar Hoyt was a young man by the council's reckoning, no more than his early thirties, but it appeared that something had aged the man terribly in the not-too-distant past. The council looked at the thin face, cheekbones, pressing against sallow flesh, eyes large but hooded in deep hollows, thin lips set in a permanent twitch of muscle too downturned to be called even a cynical smile, the hairline not so much receding as ravaged by radiation, and he felt he was looking at a man who had been ill for years. Still, the council was surprised that behind the mask of concealed pain, there remained the physical echo of the boy in the man, the faintest remnants of the round face, fair skin, and soft mouth, which had belonged to the younger, healthier, less cynical Leonard Holt. Next to the priest sat a man whose image had been familiar to most citizens of the hegemony some years before. The council wondered if the collective attention span on the world web was as short now as it had been when he had lived there. Shorter, probably. If so, then Colonel Friedman Kassad, the so-called butcher of South Brescia, was probably no longer either infamous or famous. To the council's generation, and to all those who lived in the slow ex expatriate fringe of things, Kassad was not someone who was likely to forget. Colonel Friedman Kassad was tall, almost tall enough to look the two-meter Hetmastine in the eye, and dressed in forced black with no rank insignia or citations showing. The black uniform was oddly similar to Father Hoyt's garb, but there was no real resemblance between the two men. In lieu of Hoyt's wasted appearance, Cassad was brown, obviously fit, and whip-handle lean, with strands of muscle showing in shoulder, wrist, and throat. The colonel's eyes were small, dark, and as all-encompassing as the lenses of some primitive video camera. His face was all angles, shadows, planes, and facets. Not gaunt like Father Hoyt's, merely carved from cold stone. A thin line of beard along his jawline served to accent the shape, sharpness of, a, of his countenance as surely as blood on a knife blade. The colonel's intense, slow movements reminded the council of an earth-breed jaguar he had seen in a private seed ship zoo on Lucius many years before. Cassad's voice was soft, but the council did not fail to notice that even the colonel's silences commanded attention. Most of the long table was empty, the group clustered at one end. Across from Friedman Cassad sat a man introduced as the poet Martin Silenus. Silenus appeared to be quite the opposite of the military man across from him. <clears throat> Where Cassad was lean and tall, Martin Silenus was short and visibly out of shape. Countering Cassad's stone-cut features, the poet's face was as mobile and expressive as an earth primate's. His voice was loud, was a loud, profane rasp. There was something, thought the council, almost pleasantly demonic about Martin Silenus, with his ruddy cheeks, broad mouth, pitched eyebrows, sharp ears, and constantly moving hands, sporting fingers long enough to serve a concert pianist or a strangler. 
The poet's silver hair had been cropped into rough-hewn bangs. Martin Silenus seemed to be in his late fifties, but the council noticed the telltale blue tinge to throat and palms, and suspected that the man had been through more than a few Polesian treatments. Silenus's true age might be anywhere from 90 to 150 standard years. If he was close to the latter age, the council knew the odds were that the poet was quite mad. As boisterous and animated as Martin Silenus seemed upon first encounter, so the next guest at the table exuded an immediate and equally impressive sense of intelligent reticence. Sol Wintrab looked up upon introduction, and the council nodded, noted the short gray beard, lined forehead, and sad, luminous eyes of the well-known scholar. The council had heard tales of the wandering Drew and his hopeless quest, but he was shocked to realize that the old man now held the infant in his arms, his daughter Rachel, no more than a few weeks old. The council looked away. The sixth pilgrim and only woman at the table was Brawny Lima. When introduced, the detective stared at the council with such intensity that he could feel the pressure of her gaze even after she looked away. A former citizen of the 1.3G world of Lucius, Brawny Lima was no taller than the poet two chairs to her right, but even her loose corduroy shipsuit did not conceal the heavy layers of muscle on her compact form. Black curls reached to her shoulders, her eyebrows were two dark lines dabbed horizontally across a wide brow, and her nose was solid and sharp, intensifying the aquiline quality of her stare. Lima's mouth was wide and expressive to the point of being sensuous, curled slightly at the corners in a slight smile which may be cruel or merely playful. Stop! Oh, my computer is having a hissy fit. That's fine. <laughs> the woman's dark eyes seemed to dare the observer to discover which was the case. It occurred to the council that Brani Lama might well be considered beautiful. Introductions completed, the council cleared his throat and turned toward the Templar. Hetmastine, you said there were seven pilgrims. Is M. Wintrub's child the seventh? Hetmastine's hood moved slowly from side to side. No. Only those who make, who make a conscious decision to seek the Shrike may be counted among the pilgrims. The group at the table stirred slightly. Each must know what the council knew. Only a group comprising a prime number of pilgrims might make the Shrike Church-sponsored trip north. I am the seventh, said Hetmastine, caption of the Templar tree Yagrasil and true voice of the tree. In the silence which followed the announcement, Hetmastine gestured, and a group of crew clones began serving the pilgrims their last meal before planetfall. Let's see. Yeah, let's do a little bit more. Okay. So the oysters are not in system yet, asked Brani Lama. Her voice had a husky, throaty quality, which stirred, strangely stirred the council. No, said Hetmastine, but we cannot be more than a few standard days ahead of them. Our instruments have detected fusion skirmishes within the system's oort cloud. Will there be war? asked Father Hoyt. His voice seemed as fatigued as his expression. When no one volunteered a response, the priest turned to his right, as if retroactively directing the question to the council. The council sighed. The crew clones had served wine. He wished it had been whiskey. Who knows what the oysters would do, he said. They are no longer appear to be motivated by human logic. Martin Silenus laughed loudly, spilling his wine as he gestured, as if we fucking humans were ever motivated by human logic. He took a deep drink, wiped his mouth, and laughed again. Brani Lama frowned. 
Probably Braun Lamiot or something like that weird. If the serious fighting starts too soon, she said, perhaps the authorities will not allow us to land. We will be allowed to pass, said Hetmastine. Sunlight found its way past folds in his cowl to fall on yellowish skin. Saved from certain death in war, to be delivered to certain death at the hands of the Shrike, murmured Father Hoyt. There is no death in all the universe, intoned Martin Silenus in a voice, which the council felt sure could have awakened someone deep in cryogenic fugue. The poet drained the last of his wine and raised the empty goblet into an apparent toast to the stars. No smell of death, there shall be no death, moan, moan. Moan, Sibel, moan, for thy pernicious babes have changed a god into a shaking palsy. Moan, brethren, moan, for have no strength left. Weak as the reed, weak, feeble as my voice. Oh, oh, the pain, the pain of feebleness. Moan, moan, for I still thaw. Silenus abruptly broke off and poured more wine, belching once into the silence which had followed his recitation. The other six looked at one another. The council noted that Sol Runtrab was smiling slightly until the baby in his arms stirred and distracted him. Well, said Father Hoyt hesitantly, as if trying to retrieve an earlier strand of thought, if the hegemony conveys convoy leaves and the oysters take Hyperion, perhaps the, perhaps the occupant will be bloodless and they'll let us go about our business. Colonel Friedman Kassad laughed softly. The oysters don't want to occupy Hyperion, he said. If they take the planet, they'll loot what they want and then do what they do best. They'll burn the cities into charred rubble, break the rubble into smaller pieces, and then bake the pieces until they glow. They'll melt the poles, boil the oceans, and then use the residue to salt what's left of the continent so nothing will ever grow there again. Well, began Father Hoyt, and then trailed off. There was no conversation as the clones cleared the soup and salad dishes and brought out the main course. <clears throat> you said that there was a hegemony warship escorting us, the council said to Het Mastine as they finished their roast beef and boiled sky squid. The Templar nodded and pointed. The council squinted, but could make out nothing moving against the rotating starfield. Here, said Friedman Kassad, and leaned across Father Hoyt to hand the council a collapsible pair of military binoculars. The council nodded his thanks, thumbed on the power, and scanned the patch of sky Hetmestine had indicated. Gyroscopic crystals in the binoculars hummed slightly as they stabilized the optics and swept the area in programmed search pattern. Suddenly, the image froze, blurred, expanded, and steadied. <clears throat> The council could not avoid an involuntary intake of breath as the hegemony ship filled the viewer. Neither the expected field-blurred field sea of a solar ramscout nor the bulb of a torch ship. The electronically outlined image was a matte black attack carrier. The thing was impressive in the way only warships through the centuries had succeeded in being. The hegemony spin ship was incongruously streamlined, with its four sets of boom arms retracted in battle readiness. Its 60-meter command probe, sharp as a clovis point, and its hawking drive and fusion blisters set far back along the launch shaft like feathers on an arrow. The council handed the binoculars back to Kassad without comp comment. If the task force was using a full attack carrier to escort the Yagrasil, what kind of firepower were they setting in place to meet the Oster invasion? How long until we land? asked Bron Lama. Lama? Fuck, how do I say her name? Ive. She had been using her comlog to, com to access the tree ship's data, data sphere and obviously was frustrated with what she had found, or had not found. Four hours until orbit, murmured Hetmestine. A few minutes more by dropship. Our counselor friend has offered his private craft to ferry you down. 
To Keats, said Solwintrap. It was the first time the scholar had spoken since dinner had been served. The council nodded. It's still the only spaceport on Hyperion set to handle passenger vehicles, he said. Spaceport? Father Hoyt sounded angry. I thought that we were going straight to the north, to the Shrike's realm. Hetmestine patiently shook his head. The pilgrimage always begins from the capital, he said. It will take several days to reach the time tombs. Several days, snapped Bron Lemur. That's absurd. Perhaps, agreed Hetmastine, but in the, but it is the case nonetheless. Father Hoyt looked as if someone something in the metal, metal had caused him meal had caused him indigestion, even though he had eaten almost nothing. Look, he said, couldn't we change the rules this once? I mean, given the war scare and all, just land near the time tombs or wherever we get it and get it over with. The council shook his head. Spacecraft and aircraft have been trying to take the short route to the northern moors for almost 400 years, he said. I know of none who made it. May one inquire, asked Martin Silenus, happily raising his hand like a schoolboy, just what the gibbering fuck happens to those legions of ships? Father Hoyt frowned at the poet. Friedman Kassad smiled slightly. Solwintrub said, The council did not mean to suggest that the area is inaccessible. One may travel by ship or various land routes, nor do spacecraft and aircraft disappear. They easily land near the ruins or time tombs and just as easily return to whatever point their computers command. It is merely the pilots and passengers who are never seen again. Wintrap lifted the sleeping baby from his lap and set her in an infant carrier slung around his neck. So the tired old legend goes, said Bron Lamia. What do the ship's logs show? Nothing said the council. No violence, no forced entry, no deviation from course. No unexplained time lapses, no unusual energy admissions or depletions, no physical phenomena of any sort. No passengers, said Hetmestine. The council did a slow double take. If Hetmestine had, indeed, just attempted a joke, it was the first sign in all of the council's decades of dealing with the Templars that one of them had shown even a nascent sense of humor. Well, the council could see if the captain's vaguely oriental features beneath the cowl gave no hint that a joke had been attempted. Marvelous melodrama, laughed Silenus, a real-life Christ-weeping sargasso of souls were in for it. And where in where and where for it? What orchestrates this subplot shitpot of a plot anyway? Shut up, said Bron Lamia. You're drunk, old man. The council sighed. The group had been together for less than a standard hour. Crew clones swept away the dishes and brought dessert trays showcasing sherbets, coffees, tree ship fruits, drums, torts, and concoctions made of Renaissance chocolate. Martin Silentness waved away the desserts and told the clones to bring him another bottle of wine. The council reflected a few seconds and then asked for whiskey. Yeah, okay. It occurs to me. Solwintrub said, as the group was finishing dessert, that our survival may depend upon our talking to one another. What do you mean? asked Bron Lamia. Wintrub unconsciously rocked to the child sleeping against his chest. For instance, does anyone here know why they, he or she was chosen by the Shrike Church and the all thing to go on this voyage? No one spoke. I thought not, said Wintrub. Even more fascinating, is anyone here a member or a follower of the Church of the Shrike? I, for one, am a Jew. And however confused my religious notions have become these days, they do not include the worship of an organic killing machine. Wintraub raised heavy eyebrows and looked around the table. 
I am the true voice of the tree, said Hetmastine. While many Templars believe that the Shrike is an avatar of punishment for those who do not feed from the root, I must consider this a heresy not founded in the Covenant or in the writings of Mir. To the captain's left, the council shrugged. I am an atheist, he said, holding a glass of whiskey to the light. I have neither been in contact... I have never been in contact with the, con with the Shrike cult. Father Hoyt smiled with humor. The Catholic Church ordained me, he said. Shrike worship contradicts everything the Church defends. Colonel Cassad shook his head. Whether in refusal to respond or to indicate that he was not a member of the Shrike Church, it was not clear. Martin Silenus made an expansive gesture. I was baptized a Lutheran, he said, a subset which no longer exists. I helped create then conistism before any of your parents were born. I have been a Catholic, a re revelationist, a neo-Marxist, an interfacet zealot, a bound shaker, a Satanist, a bishop of the Church of Jake's Nada, and a dues-paying subscriber to the Assured Reincarnation Institute. Now I am happy to say, I am a simple pagan. He smiled at everyone. To a pagan, he concluded, the Shrike is a most acceptable deity. I ignore religions, said Bron Lamia. I do not succumb to them. My point has been made, I believe, said Sol Wintrub. None of us admits to subscribing to the Shrike cult dogma, yet the elders of that perceived perceptive group have chosen us over many millions of the petitioning faithful to visit the time tombs, and their fierce god, in what may be the last such pilgrimage. The council shook his head. Your point may be made, M. Wintrub, he said, but I fail to see it. The scholar absently stroked his beard. It would seem that our reasons for returning to Hyperion are so compelling that even the Shrike Church and the hegemony probability intelligence is agree that we deserve to return, he said. Some of these reasons, mine, for instance, may appear to be public knowledge, but I am certain that none are known in their entirety except to the individuals at this table. I suggest that we share our stories in the few days remaining to us. Why? said Colonel Cassid. It would seem to serve no purpose. Wintrop smiled. On the contrary, it would, at the very least, amuse us and give us at least a glimpse of our fellow travelers' souls before the Shrike or some other calamity distracts us. Beyond that, it might just give us enough insight to save all of our lives. If we are intelligent enough to find the common thread of experience which binds all of our fates to the whim of the Shrike. Martin Silenus laughed and closed his eyes. He said, straddling each a dolphin's back and steadied by a fin, those innocents relive their death, their wounds open again. That's Lenista, isn't it? said Father Hoyt. I studied her in seminary. Close, said Silenus, opening his eyes and pouring more wine. It's Yates. Bugger lived five hundred years before Lenista tugged at her mother's metal teat. Look, said Lamia. Lamia, what good would telling each other stories do? When we meet the Shrike, it will we will tell it what we want. One of us is granted that wish and the others die, correct? So goes the myth, said Wintrob. The Shrike is no myth, said Cassid, nor its steel tree. So why bore each other with stories, said Bron Lamia, spearing the last of her chocolate cheesecake. Wintrab gently touched the back of his sleeping infant's head. We live in strange times, he said, because we are part of that one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of the hegemony citizens who travel between the stars rather than along the web, we represent odd, odd epochs of our own recent past. I, for example, am sixty-eight standard years old, but because of the time debts my travels could have incurred, 
I might have spread these three score and eight years across well more than a century of hegemony history. So, said the woman ne next to him, Wintrob opened his hand and gesture, which included everyone at the table. Among us, we represent islands of time as well as separate oceans of perspective. Or perhaps more aptly put, each of us may hold a piece to a puzzle no one else has been able to solve since humankind first landed on Hyperion. Wintrob scratched his nose. It is a mystery, he said, and to tell the truth, I am intrigued by mysteries, even if it, this is to be my last week of enjoying them. I would welcome some glimmer of understanding, but, failing that, working on a puzzle will suffice. I agree, said Hetmastine with no emotion. It had not occurred to me, but I see the wisdom of telling our tales before we confront the Shrike. What's to keep us from lying? asked Bronlemia. Nothing, Martin and Silas grinned. That's the beauty of it. We should put it to a vote, said the council. He was thinking about Mina Gladstone's contention that one of the group was an Oster agent. Would hearing the stories be, way, be a way of revealing the spy? The council smiled at the thought of an agent so stupid. Who decided that we are a happy little democracy? Colonel Cassad asked dryly. We had better be, said the council. To reach our individual goals, the group needs to reach the Shrike region together. We require some means of making decisions. We could appoint a leader, said Cassad. Piss on that, the poet said in a pleasant tone. Others at the table also shook their heads. All right, said the council, we vote. Our first decision relates to M1 Trub's suggestion that we tell the stories of our past involvement with Hyperion. All or nothing, said Hetmestine. We each share our stories or none does. We will abide by the will of the majority. Agreed, said the council, suddenly curious to hear the others tell their stories, and equally sure that he would never tell his own. Those in favor of telling our tales? Yes, said Sol Wintrup. Yes, said Hetmestine. Absolutely, said Martin Silenus. I wouldn't miss, the, miss this little comic farce for a month in the orgasm baths on Shote. I vote yes also, said the council, surprising himself. Those opposed? Nay, said Father Hoyt, but there was no energy in his voice. I think it's stupid, said Bron Lamia. The council turned to Cassid. Connell? Friedman Cassid shrugged. I register four, four votes yes, two negatives, and one abstent abstentation, said the council. The eyes have it. Who wants to start? The table was silent. Finally, Martin Silenus looked up from where he had been writing on a small pad of paper. He tore a sheet into several smaller strips. I've recorded numbers from one to seven, he said. Why don't we draw lots and go in the order we draw? That seems rather childish, doesn't it? said Emlamia. I'm a childish fellow, responded Silenus with his satyr smile. Ambassador, he nodded toward the council. Could I borrow that gilded pillow you're wearing for a hat? The council handed over his tricorn. The folded slips were dropped in and the hat passed around. Sol Wintrab was the first to draw, and Martin Silenus the last. The council unfolded his slip, making sure no one else could see it. He was number seven. Tension ebbed out of him like air out of an overinflated balloon. It was quite possible, he reasoned, that events would intercede before he had to tell his story. Or the war could, would make everything academic. Or the group could lose interest in stories. Or the king could die. Or the horse could die. Or he could teach the horse how to talk. No more whiskey, thought the council. Who's first? asked Martin Silenus. In the brief silence, the council could hear leaves stirring to unfelt breezes. I am, said Father Hoyt. The priest's expression showed the same but barely submerged acceptance of pain which the council had seen on the faces of terminally ill friends. Hoyt held up his slip of paper with a large one, clearly scrawled on it. All right, said Silenus. Start. Now? asked the priest. Why not? said the poet. 
The only sign that Silenus had finished at least two bottles of wine was a slight darkening of the already ruddy cheeks and a somewhat more demonic tilt to the pitched eyebrows. We have a few hours before planetfall, he said, and I for one plan to sleep off the freezer fugue when we're safely down and settled amongst the simple natives. Our friend has a point, Solwintrob said softly. If the tales are to be told, the hour after dinner each day is a civilized time to tell them. Father Hort sighed and stood. Just a minute, he said, and left the dining platform. After some minutes had passed, Braun Lamia said, Do you think he's lost his nerve? No, said Leonard Hoyt, emerging from the darkness at the head of the wooden escalator which served as the main staircase. I needed these. He dropped two small, stained notebooks on the table as he took his seat. No fair reading stories from a primer, said Silenus. Those are, these are to be our own tale, tall tales, Magus. Shut up, damn it, cried Holt. Hoyt. He ran a hand across his face, touched his chest. For the second time that night, the council knew that he was looking at a seriously ill man. I'm sorry, said Father Hoyt, but if I'm to tell my, my tale, I have to tell someone else's story as well. These journals belong to the man who was the reason for my coming to Hyperion, and why I am returning today. Hoyt took a deep breath. The council touched the journals. They were begrimed and charred, as if they had survived a fire. Your friend has old-fashioned tastes, he said if he still keeps a written journal. Excuse me. Yes, said Hoyt. If you're all ready, I will begin. The group at the table nodded. Beneath the dining platform, a kilometer of tree ship drove through the cold night with the strong pulse of a living thing. Sol Wintrob lifted his sleeping child from the infant carrier and carefully set her on a cushioned mat on the floor near his chair. He removed his comm log, set it near the mat, and programmed the disk key for white noise. The weak old infant lay on her stomach and slept. The council leaned far back and found the blue and green star, which was Hyperion. It seemed to grow even larger as he watched. Hetmastine drew his cowl forward until only shadows showed for his face. Solwintrub lighted a pipe. Others accepted refills of coffee and settled back in their chairs. Martin Silenus seemed the most avid and expectant of the listeners as he leaned forward and whispered. He said, "'Sin, I shall begin the game.' What welcome be the cut, a goddess name? Now let us ride, and hearkeneth what I say, and with thy that word we riden forth our way. And he began with right a merry cheer, his tale anon, and said, as ye may hear. We will leave this here tonight, and next week we will read the priest's tale, The Man Who Cried God. Uh, if anyone ever listens to this, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I hope it gives you something to look forward to. Good night. <laughs>